I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. She who loves this shit, if you weren't already aware. Now, before I dive too deep into today's episode, I need to confess something. Am I certain that I haven't already covered the story of Procne and Philomela? No, but I searched the folder with all my scripts and nothing came up, and I googled and nothing, so here's hoping. If I've already done it, I could swear I haven't. But still, if I've already done it, I'm sure this version will be even better. Or different, at least. A couple of quick reminders. Hey, I wrote a book. Have you pre-ordered it yet? It's mythology. By me. It's fun. It doesn't sugarcoat those darn gods' actions. And it's got the most beautiful illustrations you will ever see. They're super weird and kind of dark, and I love them so much. Anyway, pre-order that bitch. Mythsbaby.com slash book. Also, I spoke with Bettany Hughes last week, and it was fucking incredible. 
such an amazing conversation about my all-time favorite goddess, the woman who got me obsessed in the first place, Aphrodite. We talked about her history, the goddesses around the Mediterranean that were ancestors of hers in their own way, and mythology as a whole. She didn't say it in her beautiful British accent, but it's pretty clear that Bettany loves this shit too. That episode will drop on November 3rd, so please get excited. It was so fun. But for now, we're still in spooky season. This is episode 96. Horror comes in many forms. The transformations of the daughters of Minias, Procne, and Philomela. Main ads, backhick rights, wine and drug-fueled frenzies... Oh, Dionysus. I think we all want to believe that Dionysus is the cool god, the god who's different from the others, the one we'd actually want to worship in the year 2020, the god of wine and good times. But in truth, Dionysus is a Greek god like any other, and that means that there are certain expectations associated with his worship, certain requirements, and if you don't follow through with those, you may just be in some trouble. Just remember what happened to Pentheus and Agave of Thebes. They had a tough go of it. They didn't believe in Dionysus, or at least Pentheus certainly didn't. He tried to stop the worship of that beloved god of wine, and what did he get for it? His mother ripped his head off and paraded it through town, believing it to be the head of a lion she'd just killed with her bare hands. So the ancients lived with that in mind. You probably don't want what happened to Pentheus and Agave to happen to you, right? Well, that leads us to the daughters of a man named Minias. The Miniades, they can be called, or simply their names. What a concept. Alcathoe, Arsippe, and Leucippe. Now, I will be referring to them as the daughters of Minias because, frankly, it's easier than listing those three names super often. Our story for today, as told by my beloved Ovid in Metamorphoses, begins with a statement. The daughters of Minias, Alcathoe, Arsippe, and Leucippe don't take part in Bacchic rituals, his sacred orgies. They even have the nerve to say, aloud, no less, that Dionysus is not the son of Zeus. This says it all. The priest of Dionysus has given orders for a Bacchic festival. All the women of the town will get together for their worship of Dionysus. Women, even servants, get a day off from whatever they're meant to do in order to properly worship the god. They're to wrap animal hides over their boobs, let their hair down, carry around their thirsty, and if they don't, well, they'll certainly face Dionysus's wrath. Guess who doesn't do this? Yes, you guessed it. The daughters of Minias. The daughters of Minias choose not to worship Dionysus. Quote, Bromius, Laius, and the twice-born, and the one who has two mothers, blazing lightning son, and Nicias, and Thionius the unshorn, and Linnaeus, and the planter of the vine that brings such joy, Nictelius, as well as father Elelius, and Euhan, and Diacus. Yes, those are all the names for Dionysus, and I didn't even get to include Bacchus. The daughters of Minias choose not to worship this old god, this well-traveled god, the god who killed Pentheus and Lycurgus for sacrilege. 
The god who rolls in on a chariot drawn by lynxes. The god who has bacchants and satyrs following him. The god who makes Theban women cry, quote, Be with us now, O merciful and mild. If you're going to worship any god of ancient Greece, how, how could it not be Dionysus? But no, the daughters of Minias choose not to worship that day. They keep close to their looms, though they were explicitly told to leave them for the day. They keep their servant women busy, though they were explicitly told to let them, too, be free to worship Dionysus, alongside all the other women of the town. And completely ignoring that obviously you should worship the gods when you're supposed to, any Greek myth would teach you that. But as a woman in ancient Greece... How could you not jump at the chance to leave all the men behind and join a group of all women in the forest for a night of wine and revelry? It sounds like a dream come true. But not for the daughters of Minias. No. Instead, they sit at their looms, weaving away as good women controlled by the patriarchy, and they chat to each other about just how high and mighty they feel for not involving themselves in the worship of Dionysus. In my mind, all I can see is conservative white women. You know, the ones. Maybe evangelicals. Sorry. The daughters of Minias instead talk about Athena, how they're doing the work devoted to her, weaving at a loom, and how she's the better god anyway, so clearly they're in the right. They tell each other stories as they weave, that is, in the Ovid version they do. These daughters of Minias and their storytelling lead into many of the stories of transformation that Ovid tells in his work before returning to the story of those women. They finish their storytelling still weaving away and feeling very, very sure of their decisions, feeling like they're the only good women in town, the only women not tempted by Dionysus and his revelry. Truly, don't they sound like really boring, dark souls? Anyway, as they weave and weave and their pride in themselves grows, they're finally interrupted by a roar, the booming sound of drums, the sound of flutes, of horns, of gongs. It all echoes in the room around them. As if all the sounds are coming from nowhere and everywhere at once. Then, a smell from out of nowhere, permeating the room. Myrrh and saffron. The smell overwhelms. The booming of the instruments echoes. The smell of myrrh and saffron spreads around the women as they sit, surprised, a little unnerved, in the room with their looms. The clanging, banging, booming of drums and flutes and horns sounds all around them, a cacophony. Then, the transformation starts. The fabric they've been weaving begins to sprout vines. Leaves erupt from it. The fabric itself transforms into plants, into grapevines. The deep purple fabric that was moments ago draped across the loom transforms into the deep purple of grape clusters. The room Fills with grapevines, leaves, the grapes themselves. It's dusk now outside, so there is little light coming through the windows, and even less as the room becomes overtaken with vines and leaves and grapes. The stone walls shake loudly, 
Lights in the room, the oil lamps flare bright, the roars of invisible animal sounds around the women as though they're being stalked by lions, tigers, bears, but they can't see anything. They're all afraid now, these daughters, Alcathoe, Arsippi, and Leukippi. How could they not be? Their room is no longer their room. Horrible sounds echo in their ears. They try to hide, but where? Nothing is as it was. The flare of the lamps has set the room ablaze. Fire licks at the grapevines and the looms. Smoke fills the room, and it's nearly impossible for the women to see through it. It's so hard for them to see that each of their arms has already begun to transform, in fact, is already deeply inhuman by the time the women notice. Their arms are becoming wings, but not the wings of birds, featherless, thin, and bony. They'd each of them grown into bats' wings. As they see this in each other, they cry out, but before they could even form words, the rest of their bodies have transformed too. They've become bats. They still try to speak, but all they can do is squeak to each other. And you may have noticed a name in passing reference earlier, the name Lycurgus, listed alongside Pentheus of Thebes, the more famous of Dionysus's victims, or victims of disbelieving in the god, I should say. Lycurgus was a man who not only didn't believe in Dionysus as he should, but who ran him out of his city, chasing Dionysus to the sea where he sought refuge with the nymph Thetis. But Dionysus, of course, got his revenge. He caused Lycurgus to go mad, to kill his own son, some say, or others that Zeus blinded him. Or even still, a version that he hadn't just run Dionysus out of town, but that first he'd imprisoned the maenads and satyrs that accompanied the god, causing even more anger in that brilliant and bananas god of wine. That in the end his own people killed him to offset a curse on their land. There are many versions of the story of Lycurgus, but all too brief for a story of their own. Still, he fits here, with others who were horrendously punished for not properly appeasing that god of fun times, that god of ecstasy, Dionysus. Pentheus, Lycurgus, the daughters of Minias. Truly, it's best if one just worships the gods as they're supposed to. would save a lot of death, destruction, horrible transformations. And speaking of horrible transformations... I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. 
the iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right, I'm keeping you on your toes. Speaking of horrible transformations. Today, we're also diving into the depressing story of the two very tragic sisters, Procne and Philomela. Much like the daughters of Minias, this story comes from many sources, but it is so beautifully told in my beloved Ovid's Metamorphoses that we will be basing much of today's story off of that account. Because, I mean, Ovid... Their story begins in Athens, where the king is Pandion. It seems, at this time, that Athens was being inundated with attacks from neighboring regions. Barbarians, they call them, but of course, that just meant they weren't Greek. Regardless, all we need to know today is that Athens was being attacked. They needed help. That help came in the form of Thracians. The king of Thrace at that time was a man named Tyrius, and he brought his Thracians to help the Athenians— Pandion was so very grateful for the help, he wanted to repay Tyrius for coming to their rescue. So Pandion gave to Tyrius his daughter, Procne, in marriage. And you all know how much I love stories where women are given away as property. Just the best. Still, that's what happened. Pandion gave to Tyrius Procne, and they were married. But their marriage didn't begin on a good foot. According to Ovid... Juno, the goddess of weddings and marriage, their patron, didn't attend. Bad omen number one. Neither did Hymen, the god of marriage, or the Graces, those women who always attend such things. No, none of these important, marriage-related gods attended the wedding. Instead, so says Ovid, it was the Furies themselves who carried the torches through the procession. They'd stolen the torches from a funeral. It was the Furies who prepared the wedding bed, for this new couple. This is how they were married, and how they conceived their child. Not good signs. No, indeed. Almost, I would argue, horrifying. Still, the couple themselves weren't particularly troubled by their wedding. They didn't know that gods did and didn't attend. They didn't know outright that it was furies attending them. They were happy enough. 
Tyrius and Procne returned to Thrace, where they were greeted with more happiness from the Thracian people. It seemed like a good match. A princess of their ally, Athens, as the new queen. The Thracians celebrated the match. They'd celebrated even more when the prince, a baby named Itis, was born. Time passed, and after five years of living with her husband in Thrace, Procne missed home. Particularly, she missed her sister, Philomela. Procne went to Tyrius with these feelings, telling him that if he cared for her at all, he would allow her to visit home or would bring her sister Philomela to visit Procne there in Thrace. She was so desperate to see her sister. Tyrius agreed. He put together his ship and he sailed to Athens to pick up Philomela and bring her to Thrace. Tarius was greeted by Pandion in Athens with open arms. How lovely it was to see Tarius again. Tarius proceeded to explain why he was there. He was there to pick up Philomela and bring her to Thrace to visit her sister. She won't be gone long, he tells Pandion. She'll be back before you know it, safe and sound. It's in this moment that Philomela is brought before Tarius for the first time. They hadn't met before. Philomela is brought in so that she can speak with Tyrius, so that Pandion may decide whether or not Philomela can accompany him to Thrace. There's just one problem. See, Tyrius is an absolute piece of shit. Like, one of the all-time worst in all of Greek mythology, I would argue. He's a real garbage human being. The moment he sees Philomela, he decides he simply must have her. Mm-hmm, yes, must have her. It isn't about her, of course. She's just beautiful and he's entitled, and also, sadly, this was probably the Greeks and even Ovid saying something about the Thracian people, that there was some xenophobia there for sure. But still, from what we have to go on here, which is Tyrius's fucked-up personality, he really, truly is a piece of absolute shit. Anyway, he decides he must have Philomela. I won't use the word love here, or even like. It's lust and unchecked privilege and toxic masculinity that drives Tyrius. He wants her, and he will have her. That's just the way it is. With Philomela before him and his obsession growing more and more dangerous by the second, Tyrius becomes more forceful in his desire to take Philomela with him to Thrace. He channels his own wife, Procne, and says everything she said to him, pulling all the heartstrings, drawing on all the emotions that were within his wife. She wants to see her sister so very badly. Philomela, for her part, has no idea what a horrifying person Tyrius is. She sees her sister's husband, sees him relaying her sister's message. Philomela, of course, wants to see her sister just as badly, so hearing these words only makes her more eager to accompany Tyrius back to Thrace. So she, too, tries to convince her father to let her go. Finally, Pandion relents. How could he say no to that? Of course, Philomela could go visit her sister. She missed Procne just as much as Procne missed her. They feast that night, celebrating and visiting, before everyone goes off to bed. There, Tyrius can't sleep. He's thinking only of Philomela. Oh, is Ovid graphic in this one? Graphic when it comes to Tyrius's licentiousness, graphic when it comes to the foreboding comments on the fates of Procne and Philomela. But he checks his urges long enough to get them on their way, back to the port of Piraeus, back onto Tyrius's ship, and sailing back to Thrace. According to Ovid, 
Tyrius's fucked upness extends so far as to him deciding just how he'll get away with what he wants to do to Philomela. Would he need to bribe those accompanying her, nurses, attendants, whoever? Would he try to convince Philomela that she wanted him too? Would he even attempt a consensual encounter? Or would he just move straight to sexual assault? These are the options Tyrius runs through his mind. How horrific to be, he thinks. What level of awful shall I be today? Before they sail off, though, Pandion pulls Tyrius aside to speak with him. Oh, son-in-law, he calls Tyrius. I'm entrusting you with my other daughter. Please guard her from any danger and bring her back to me before long. Pandion says the same to Philomela. He loves her. He doesn't want her gone too long. He already misses her sister so much. He can't have her gone too long as well. He even tears up a bit. Seriously, Ovid is pulling every heartstring a human has with this one. And with that emotional goodbye between father and daughter, Tyrius and Philomela board the ship to Thrace, and they're on their way. On board the ship, Tyrius is inwardly thrilled. He's won. He'll get what he wants from this poor woman who left her father and her home so trustingly. Finally, they reach land. The ship docks in Thrace, and Tyrius whisks Philomela onto the land and brings her straight to a nearby hut hidden away in the woods. There, he'll keep her. Inside the hut, Tarius tells Philomela everything he'd been planning. He tells her what he wants from her. Frankly, this episode is getting me far more than usual. Truly, it's particularly horrific. I won't be going into details. I'm sad I even read them. I won't be saying much at all. Because you know what Tarius does to Philomela in that hut. I've told you enough about him and his plans. Tyrius is a truly horrifying character, a monster to top all the others, to rival even Zeus himself. When Philomela is finally able to speak, to voice what's just happened to her, she's furious. She's furious at what he's done, how he's deceived her, and she's forced to also feel a level of guilt due to the horrible world she lives in. She tells Tyrius that what he's done has ruined her relationship with her sister, that he's made himself a bigamist, ruined their bonds of marriage. Of course, this is all true, but it's the horrific way she blames herself that's truly heartbreaking and deeply inaccurate. It is never a person's fault when they're assaulted. Never. Finally, Philomela curses Tarius directly, telling him he'll pay for what he's done, that she'll scream it from the rooftops even if she's hidden away in these woods, that her story will even reach the gods themselves high up on Mount Olympus, that she'll make herself loud and angry, and he won't be able to get away with it. At this, Tarius gets even angrier. He has no conscience, no morals, no sense of humanity, and that becomes all the more clear when he hears Philomela's threats against him. He ties her up within that hut. He pulls his sword from its sheath. Philomela believes he plans to kill her, and she's even a little relieved, happy to have it over, the horror she's just endured, the guilt she feels for the hurt it will cause her own sister. But he isn't planning to kill her. The monster still wants her. Instead, Tarius cuts out Philomela's tongue. Not long after this horrifying incident in the hut, hidden away in the woods, 
Tyrius returns home to his wife, Procne. As he is truly the worst of the absolute worst, he's able to return to her and not give away even a hint of what he's just done, who he has hidden in the woods. He returns to Procne, and of course, she wants to know where her sister is. He went all the way to Athens to pick her up, so where is she? Procne asks him frantically. To this, Tereus feigns a groan, feigns sadness, feigns emotion. He tells Procne that her sister died on the way. He comes up with a whole intricate story, a lie about her sister's death. To make sure he's sufficiently convincing, Tereus even cries. Procne is heartbroken by the news of her sister's death. She mourns her as best she can, sacrificing and worshipping to the gods to give her sister a comfortable journey to the underworld. Procne does everything she can to make sure her sister's death is a comfortable one. A death that, of course, hasn't actually occurred. full year passes. A fucking year. Philomela is locked in that hut, forced to be there whenever Tereus comes to visit with her, the absolute horror show that he is. There's nothing she can do, either. She can't get out, and even if she did, she doesn't know where she is or how she'd get anywhere, and even if she could, she can't speak. Finally, her ingenuity takes hold, and after that devastating, tragic year she's had, she comes up with an idea. Using whatever's in the hut with her, she puts together a makeshift loom. It isn't pretty, but it'll work. With it, she weaves. She weaves and weaves, weaving pictures and symbols into the fabric. Pictures and symbols that tell the story of what's happened to her. What Tyrius did. Just what kind of man he really is, and where she's been all this time. Philomela weaves this together as quickly as she can, as intricately as she can. There's no room for mistakes here, no room for misunderstandings in what she's putting together. She must make Procne or whoever understand what's happened and is still happening to her. When it's finished, she rolls it up tightly and hands it to the woman tasked with bringing her food, doing what needs to be done for Philomela in that hut. She gives it to her and motions to bring it to the queen, and the woman agrees. She doesn't know what's rolled up in her arms, doesn't know a reason why she shouldn't hand it over to the queen. It's not as though Tereus had let others in on his crimes. So, finally, after so long and so much sadness, Procne is given the piece of fabric woven by her sister. The fabric that tells the whole gruesome tale from start to finish leaves no stone unturned, leaves no detail about Tyrius unsaid. Finally, Procne knows the truth. She knows her sister isn't dead and that her own husband is the cause of everything. She knows what he's done. Procne is heartbroken by this news, sure. But more than anything, she's angry. Furious. Rage flows through her at even the thought of Tyrius. And so she plots. She thinks long and hard about all the ways she can punish him for what he's done, and all the ways she can completely ruin him. Around this time, 
is the Feast of Bacchus, a festival in honor of that same god from our previous story. In fact, the very same type of festival, though this one in Thrace, with Thracian women as the stars of the show. This is perfect for Procne's plans. Drums, cymbals, flutes crash and sound in the distance, the sounds of this Bacchic festival, this Bacchic frenzy. Procne looks the part, too. Wreaths of vines wrap around her head, trailing down her body. She wears a deerskin. She's armed with a lance. She walks through the forest, confidently, righteously, trailed by the other women, there to worship the god of wine, the god of ecstasy, the god of frenzy. She walks through that forest with a purpose. She bursts through the door of the hut where her sister has been imprisoned, nearly kicks the thing down in her rage, so many emotions flowing through her at once. She grabs hold of Philomela, dresses her up as yet another woman there to worship Bacchus, just another in the crowd. And just like that, Procne brings her beloved sister back to the palace where she can be hidden away in safety while Procne continues on with her plan. Of revenge. While this is all happening, Philomela is emotional, and rightly so. She tries to give her thanks to the gods to embrace her sister, but Procne isn't having it. Not yet. Procne is too filled with fury to take a moment's pause. She tells Philomela not to just steal herself, but if she knows of something harder even than steal, Procne is ready to hear of it. She tells her sister bluntly, she's ready to kill ready to set the whole place ablaze, ready to cut out Tereus's own tongue, his eyes even. Procne is ready for anything, everything, to take revenge against her husband. She's ready, she tells her sister, but she's still got to decide on the best course of action in the punishment. The very worst thing she could do to Tereus. It's this moment when Itis... Procne and Tereus's son walks through the door. With a glint in her eye, it comes to Procne. How best to punish him? Oh, how you look like your father, she tells Itis. For a brief moment, she's not quite sure of this decision. She's swayed by her son, by his arms wrapping around her, by the look in his eyes. So she looks over at her sister. She thinks to herself, according to Ovid, quote, And why can he still speak endearingly, while she is mute, her tongue cut out? If he can call me mother, why can't she say sister? O oh, daughter of Pandion, do you remember the sort of man you married? Do you waver? To pity such a husband is a crime. That's all it takes, that little reminder to herself. Procne, along with Philomela, whisks her son away to the darkest depths of the palace where the sisters, quite viciously and mercilessly, kill the child. There's details in Ovid that I won't relay, but it's a horrible, gory scene. It ends with the boy caught up, parts of him cooking on the spit, others boiling in the copper kettle over the fire. Procne holds a feast for her husband, she doesn't want anyone else punished like he's meant to be, though. No slaves or guards or anyone is allowed to partake in the feast but Tyrius. He fills himself with his dinner that night, eating even more than he normally would and feeling quite satisfied. Tyrius is in a good mood. Why wouldn't he be? He calls to his wife, to Procne, asking her to bring their son in to see him. 
he'd like to have a visit with his child. At this, Procne can't control herself. She's so full of rage and satisfaction at what she's just done to her husband, she's bubbling over with excitement. She tells Tyrius, quote, The one you want is with you now, inside. Tyrius doesn't understand at first. He looks around, trying to spot Itis wherever he might be hiding, when, in a mad dash, Philomela runs into the room showing herself to Tyrius. She is still covered in the boy's blood, dripping with it, holding his head. She's never wished she could speak more. How satisfying it would be to cry out to Tyrius now. Tyrius panics at first. He doesn't know what to do. He calls upon the Furies for help. This is what they're meant for. He calls himself the grave of his own son. He tries to rip at his stomach. But finally, he knows who he really wants to punish. He pulls its sword from its sheath and goes in search of Procne and Philomela, who are both long gone. Gone and transformed, a swallow and a nightingale. And Tyrius, in his searching and calling out, is also transformed into a bird, a hoopoe. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. 
Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, nerds. Thank you all for listening. I have to admit, I know the story of Procne and Philomela well. It's one of the myths that stuck with me over the years. It's horrifying, and I'm sure that's why. But I don't know that I'd read Ovid's version before. Or if I had, I'd blocked it out. Now, I love Ovid, as you all know. But that version? What the fuck? It's actually horrifying? I'm using that word too much. It, but it is. And it's graphic, and it's not just gory, but it's so graphic when it comes to the assault of Philomela, the horrors of Tyrius, the thoughts he has. <sighs> Thankfully, Ovid is honest about it, too. He calls it what it is. There's no trying to make the woman an even remotely consenting partner. But still, it's the first time I've actually found it difficult to read Ovid. The only time I've actually cut down on his details rather than elaborating on them. I couldn't with this one. I simply couldn't. It's hard to imagine why they'd have a story like this, too. It's definitely a commentary on the Thracians, which is too bad, and certainly problematic. But still, it's really saying something about the treatment of women and families in that world. I mean, Procne and Philomela are definitely sympathetic characters, even with what they do to the kid. I don't know. It's just, well, it's wildly fucked up. Yep. Anyway, next week will be the last spooky season episode of the year. They'll admit that at this point, I have no idea what to cover. If you have any ideas, please share them. I'm really scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of Halloween-esque episodes, but I love them so much. As usual, you know, please pre-order my book, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. I don't know, this one was dark. So just, you know, you guys just keep being awesome, supportive listeners. <laughs> Thank you all. I am Liv, and I love this shit. Even this one. <laughs>